Good morning, church. If you would, grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. As you're turning there, I would remind you the reason we stand for the reading of God's Word. Standing requires a posture of attention and reverence. Um, And so as we stand at attention, let us, um, as we just sang, run to Christ and pay attention to the Word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. You may have a seat. People of God, would you go with me in prayer once more? asking for his help. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for the greatness of your gospel and how you love to save sinners, and that is what we are. The Apostle Paul said he was the chief among sinners, and we agree with him that we are, just like him, the chief among sinners. We ask for your word to come to us in clarity and in conviction and in comfort. We ask for it to be a word of power that the Holy Spirit might take this great word that he has inspired and bring it home into our hearts and minds. That we leave this day, the Lord's day, this Sunday, changed. Son might enter from death to life. That's our prayer, that some might enter from death to life today. And maybe a few of us would be changed as well. No, many of us might be changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We find ourselves in Isaiah again, chapter 5. What a great series it's been so far. A few of you have told me how encouraging it has been to walk through Isaiah uh, so far, and um, I wouldn't describe it as encouraging first five chapters or the first four chapters has been more like a punch in the throat than encouraging, but uh, we continue. It's easy to throw stones at the world. In the pastoral circles I run in, we call that low-hanging fruit. Fruit that's easy to be seen, uh, fruit easy to pick off, uh, fruit that's easy to spot as rotten or wild. It's easy to throw stones at the world. 
And I think as Christians, we do that in part because we like the attention off of ourselves and our own sin. In fact, one of my hopes as a church is that when non-Christians come to this church, they hear more about Christ and the problems of the church than they do about the world. Now, I'm not one of those who likes to criticize the church. I love the church. Don't hear me wrong. There's a bad place to criticize the church. We've all seen that. Um, but there is a place where we need to face our weaknesses and face our own sin. As 1 Peter 4:17 says, beloved, does he not, uh, that judgment um, first begins uh, with the household of God. So it's quite easy to throw stones at the world. We need to throw stones at ourselves first. And that is what Isaiah has been doing in so far in this book, uh, in the first four chapters. He has been picking off the church and the mess we have created in our sin. And chapter 5 is um, no different. We're going to take two sermons to cover chapter 5. I'm going to cover verses 1 to 7 today. Pastor Robert will cover the rest next week. Uh, But uh, chapter 5 begins this constant uh, refrain of looking at the problems of the church. And uh, Isaiah begins this chapter a little bit different. Um, He speaks, he starts to sing, actually. I didn't know Isaiah was a singer, did you? Well, he starts to sing. Let me sing for my beloved, he says in verse 1, for my love song concerning his vineyard. So this, this love song is not a song that's going to be romantic. You're not going to feel good about this song or about you, perhaps, at the end of the day. But it is a song we need to listen to, for this song instructs. It teaches. It does not entertain. And Isaiah begins his, this chapter with, uh, let me sing for my beloved. And right there, you notice Isaiah's masterful artistry, I think, in my opinion. His poetic brilliance, because the book of Isaiah, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, talks about and speaks about the grandeur of God and the greatness of God and the majesty of God, his power. In fact, Isaiah's signature, it seems to be this phrase of the Holy One of Israel. That's how he describes God. And in the next chapter, in chapter 6, he sees this exalted God, this elevated God, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Perhaps more than any other book in Scripture, there is this awe of God. And yet in chapter 5, verse 1, Isaiah changes his tune just a little bit, and he says, let me sing for my beloved. So God is not someone we ought to be in awe of only. God is someone we are to adore. He is someone we are to love. He is someone we ought to cherish and to run to, to cling to, to hold fast to. Is that just baked into your theology, by the way, beloved? A multi-dimensional view of God. One you ought to stand in awe of, but one you ought to adore as well. I suggest to you that Isaiah says, you better have it, beloved. You better get this view of God. 
So he says, let me sing for my beloved and my love song concerning his vineyard. That would be his, his people. So the song begins, and the first stanza or the first title or heading for today is love's total commitment. Love's total commitment. He sets up a parable, and he says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So this owner, this beloved owner, has a vineyard. He's going to plant this vineyard, but he doesn't plant it on any hillside. He, he picks out the finest of hills, a very fertile hill. Think of a hillside in Israel that's stretched out. The vines would be stretched out to the rays of the sun. It's perfectly placed, he says. It's communicating God's loving tenderness, his care, his commitment towards his vineyard. That is fertile on good soil. He continues in verse 2, he dug it and cleared it of stones. So it's in the right spot. He did what he needed to do to make sure this vineyard was placed in the right place. So he dug out the trenches for it. And he clears it of stones. We all know what the, happens on rocky soil. Matthew 13. So the owner says, you know, I care about this vineyard so much that I'm going to take the soil and I'll remove the stones from it so this vineyard can grow, these vines can grow. So he clears it of stones. There's an old Jewish legend that says um, when God, this is just a legend, when God created the world, that there was an angel flying over the world with two sacks of rocks under each arm, and when he flew over um, the land of Israel, one of the sacks of rocks broke, and half of the world's rocks fell in the land of Israel. That's why the, it's so rocky and stony there. And that's just a myth. But it is true that um, Israel is uh, full of stones. But this, this owner, this beloved owner, he clears the stones away. Again, it communicates his commitment, his tenderness, his loving care for this vineyard. He plants it, he says in verse 2. He plants it with choice vines. So the best of the best. It's the Granny Smith of apples, you could say. The best of the best vines, the choice vines. That's what he wants. Not just any old vineyard, not, the, not just any old vines, but the best, the choice ones, the finest of the, of the vines. He goes on, he says, I built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. So not only is he caring for it, the best hillside, the best vines for this vineyard, but he, he builds a watchtower, this, this tower of protection, of defending. He knows beasts, the animals are going to seek to come in and trample over the vineyard to pick its fruit. And so he builds this watchtower, no doubt for he himself to stay there and to watch over his beloved vineyard. So he's the great defender and provider of his vineyard. And he hews out a wine vat or a wine press. He expects fruit to come. He anticipates that grapes will come. That's why he builds a wine press. Certainly, I've done all I could to create a good setting for this vineyard to grow, so I'm going to build a wine press. He believes in himself. He has faith in himself. Don't you love that? his confidence in his work. So I'm going to build a wine press because certainly grapes will come. 
And this is a picture, beloved. This is a picture of God's loving commitment to his people. It's a picture of what he is for you in the gospel. Of choice vines. That's how he sees you. He delights in you. He cherishes you. You're the best of the best, you could say. And he's your defender, your watchtower, protecting you from the enemies that assault you inwardly and outwardly. It's a picture of God's loving, total commitment to his people. The great beloved, our God. But love's total commitment doesn't come to fruition as we would think. The end of verse 2, the song ends on a sour note. He says he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. We see secondly here our total failure. Our total failure. Remember the transference here is not to the nations or America. The transference here is to the people of God. He looked for it to yield grapes and it yielded wild grapes, our total failure. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, the, the song ends now. And so he, he says, Inhabitants of Jerusalem, the leaders of the people, and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. So Isaiah stops being the singer. He stops the song and he becomes the speaker now. Do you see that? Judge between me and my vineyard. So he gathers, picture Isaiah preaching, and he's gathering the people of Israel. You be the judge, okay? Judge between me and my vineyard. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? It's a question of quantity. Was there anything I should have done more? Israel? What, what more was there to do that, that I didn't do? Did I choose wrong vines? No. Did I forget clearing the rocks? No. Did I place it on a bad hill? No. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? It's a question of quantity, of grace. Was there something lacking of grace in the beloved, in the owner? And the answer, obviously, is no. There's no lack in God. There's no lack in him, no lack in what he has done for the vineyard. Okay, so when I looked for it to yield grapes, then why did it yield wild grapes? That's a good question. So again, he's, he's wanting the people of God to problem solve with him. He's drawing them in. So if I did all I could, why then wild grapes? Or literally, rotten grapes? It's a question of self-examination, isn't it? If the problem isn't with the beloved owner then the problem is with the vines. Why rotten grapes? And you and I, Isaiah says, 
We need to face our weaknesses as Christians. This is why I started the sermon the way I did. It's easy to throw stones at the world. And Isaiah says, you, church, have rotten grapes. The people of God, you're rotten. This question in verse 4, it requires self-examination. We Christians don't like to do that, do we? We like to say that the world's on fire. The problem is with the world. And don't get me wrong, Isaiah will address the nations. He will address the world. But first, he addresses us. Every two years, uh, Ligonier Ministries partners with LifeWay Research to conduct what they call um, the state of theology in America. Have you read this? Insightful. Um, I think they're doing it this year. They poll U.S. citizens and also U.S. evangelicals. That would be us. Okay? Just take it. I know that may not be the the phrase you like to define yourself as, but um, so be it. Evangelicals were defined in four ways, according to this study. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Secondly, it is, most, or it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Okay, good. Third, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Okay, good. Three, four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So that is how Lifeway and Ligonier define an evangelical. Pretty good. I would, think, I would think. So they go on this study. I'm going to read you four statements from this study in 2022. Statement number three. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, as valid. 2022 findings, 50 Six percent of evangelicals agree. Fifty-six percent of evangelicals agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Statement number seven. Jesus was a great teacher. This is not, he's, they're not polling U.S. citizens. Do I need to remind you of that? They're polling evangelicals. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% agree. Statement number 31. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. U.S. evangelical finding, 38% agree. Fourth statement, last one. Gender identity is a matter of choice. U.S. evangelical finding, this is in 2022, 37% agree. 
and they are increasing, by the way. Here is Ligonier's conclusion. I'll give my own in just a moment. In the evangelical sphere, doctrines including the deity and exclusivity of Jesus Christ, as well as the inspiration and authority of the Bible, are increasingly being rejected by evangelicals. While positive trends are present, including evangelicals' views on abortion, same, uh, sex outside of marriage, and inconsistent biblical ethic is also evident, with more evangelicals embracing a secular worldview in the areas of homosexuality and gender identity. End quote. The church is failing. We're failing in America. The leaders are not training and discipling her members. We have wild grapes. And we want to say again and again, the world is on fire. The church is on fire. We trust in the work of our hands, in machinery. Big sound, big churches, big programs, you name it, big, 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 and all we are is a house of entertainment. We are failing. Wild grapes is what we have. We are rotten to the core. What about this church? What about Calvary Redeeming Grace Church? Because I think you could say at one point, well, it's easy to throw stones at the evangelicals. What about Calvary Redeeming Grace Church? We don't have big crowds, though this is pretty large today. We don't have big music. We don't have big programs. We don't even like the P word. But we have big creeds. And we have big confessions. And Isaiah wants to know, do you know the God of the creed? The God of the confession? Does it do anything to your soul? Are you training and discipling as if life and death matter? I asked our elders and deacons on Wednesday night. I said, I need you to help write the sermon. I said, uh, give me a flaw of our church. Because I want to stop talking about what we do well. And I want to face our weaknesses. 
head on. We can deny them. We can seek to run from them. What is our weakness? Here's one. I believe we are very inviting and warm and personal. Yet, I think there is a limit to that. I think that if someone is not as reformed as they should be, not reading the right person, not knowing the right terms, these people can feel like they don't fit in. And they are more apt to hang on the fringes, and they are more apt not to confess sin, and their struggles with the larger body of Christ. Because they don't see themselves as one of us. Are we a church? Are you an individual Christian? Someone that invites the sinner. You know the ministry of our Lord? He didn't move an inch on truth. Not one inch, did he? And yet, I read in my Bible, sinners coming to him over and over and over again. What is it with them? Sinners found Christ so attractive. And it wasn't because they cleaned up their act before they came. It was because they knew he loved them. And they could bear their soul to him. Their heart before him. And they found him so delightful. I want to be like that. Do you? As a church, I want to be like that. So we see love's total commitment and our total failure. Following in the heels of our total failure, we see lastly God's total indictment. Verse 5, I, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is the parent talking to the kid, have a seat. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. 
And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is God's total indictment. All that he did, did you notice? All that he did, he tears down himself. Himself. He removes his hedge of protection. He breaks down its wall. Briars and thorns shall grow up. That's, a, that's language from Genesis 3. The curse has returned to the people of God. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. The early church saw this with their spiritual hermeneutic. One hermeneutic we ought to recover today. They saw this as the prophets. That God would no longer send them prophets to rain rain. To give them biblical truth anymore. In other words, Amos 7 is going to be true once again. That there will be a famine not of bread and not of water but a famine of the hearing of the word of God. That's what God is going to do. For the vineyard, verse 7, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. Those listening must have thought, no way. I thought he was talking about the world, and Isaiah says, no, I'm talking about you. Or his pleasant planting, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. A Lord means business in his indictment. Justice, the external act of righting wrongs. Righteousness, the internal condition of loving what is good and just and true. Isaiah says, you don't have any of it, people of God. Your internal disposition is rotten and your outward acts of justice doesn't exist. There's bloodshed and outcry. God's total indictment. And we think today in our church and in our context this will never happen to us. And Isaiah says, why not? Why wouldn't this happen to us? Remember the churches in Revelation 2 and 3? Ephesus and the others? I'm sure they thought the same thing. The apostles, they walked through these halls. The apostle John preached there. And yet a generation later, the Lord is taking away their lampstand and spitting out his people from his mouth. Oh, this can happen to us. And you can either deny it and run from it or face your weaknesses. You know, Jesus quotes this passage. Did you know that? It's the parable of the wicked tenants. In Luke chapter 20, the owner plants a vineyard and goes away for work. And he rents it out to tenants, wicked tenants. And the owner sends servant after servant to collect the fruit from the vine. Remember the story? And the tenants, servant after servant, beat the servants and cast them out and beat the servant and cast them out. And the owner says to himself, you know what, I had enough. I'm going to send my Beloved son. 
Where does Jesus get that term? Isaiah chapter 5. And Jesus ends that story. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. My friends, the beloved son is coming again and he's going to have you. He's going to have you as a stone and if you don't fly to him and flee to him in faith, he will crush you. He also quotes this text a second time in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. Isaiah 5. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. You know what's tempting about the Christian life? When you see yourself as a failure, you try to go out and prove yourself that you're not a failure by doing good things, being holy, being piety, piety, having piety. There you go. That's not the way it works. That's legalism. And it's a deadly trap. Jesus says, I am the true vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. We are failing as a church in this country. The remedy is not to go out and to prove ourselves that we're a real church. The remedy is to abide in Christ. And by his spirit, you will bear much fruit. You never, ever get away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this beloved son one day went to a fertile hill where he carried a cross. It was Mount Calvary. And that vine, he planted himself on that fertile hillside. He was the best of the best vine, the choice vine. He was a watchtower, if there ever was one that day. And on that day, as his blood poured to the ground, he grew a harvest of grapes around the world. Our Savior is the beloved Son. He's the vine we need. Might you abide in all that he is.
Our gracious God, we are so thankful for this word and how it convicts and how it comforts and everything in between. Might you grow a harvest. Keep us, Lord. Keep the lampstand of this church lit. Keep us in the vine. Cause this church to abide in Christ day after day, year after year. Your only hope, Lord, our only hope in life and in death as the great confessions and catechisms teach us. But Lord, in our reciting of these confessions and creeds and catechisms, oh, may they just be a tool to draw us, Lord, to your majesty, to your greatness, and to your beauty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.